An ancient man, a rich tyrant, two smucks from New York, and their lady of the left. On this episode of Ruined Childhoods, we decide the fate of Ishtar. Prequel. Sequel. Reboot. Which one will it be? Greetings, Starfighters. Welcome to Ruined Childhoods, your favorite podcast where two people you may or may not know talk about movies you may or may not seen or have seen and talk about whether there are going to be sequels, prequels, reboots or remakes that you may or may not want to happen. (laughs) Very good explanation, Dan. Uh, Yeah, thank you, John. And although people might not know who we are, some people may have heard of our guest today, critic and writer in New York, Carrie Corrigan. Hey, Carrie. Hey, how are you? Doing all right. We're really excited to have you on because uh, if anybody does follow you on Twitter, they would know that you are both an Elaine May and Twitter, I'm sorry, Twitter Ishtar enthusiast. So <laughs> this is exciting for me to oh, talk to it- someone else who's excited about Ishtar. I am very excited to have this conversation. I'm excited to be here. (laughs) So on our last episode, uh, we talked about the classic Robert Altman film, uh, The Long Goodbye. Carrie, are you familiar with that one? I'm familiar with it. I actually have to admit I've never seen it. Oh, okay. Well, it's bananas in a different (laughs) way than Ishtar is bananas. And it's it's a it's a trip. You got you got to see it. The, I just had one more thing yeah. I wanted to mention about uh, about the long goodbye. Um, we had talked about. Okay, this is actually not about the long goodbye. This actually goes back to two episodes ago in a completely unrelated thing. We were talking about Christopher Hewitt, Mr. Belvedere, <laughs> who was uh, also in the producers, and. You were talking about how he, you know, his character was a, a drag queen. But what if we combined these two characters and create a, an an amazing drag performer named Ms. Belvaqueer? <laughs> Ms. Belvaqueer? I'm sorry. I yeah. thought you were going in a different direction with that because I thought, oh, Mrs. Doubtfire. And oh, no, 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 no. No. <laughs> Ms. Belvaqueer. All right. Just a thought. Just a thought. Okay. Uh, uh, but because we have Carrie here, I, I think we should probably launch into Ishtar. And I would say we have quite a bit to talk about, don't we? I think so. Before I launch into a synopsis of this film, which is way more detailed than they usually are because there's this is such a dense movie, I wanted to ask Carrie, like, what's what was your experience with Ishtar? How did it first come into your life? Um, so I've been an Elaine May fan since high school, and I, there was this wonderful article by Lindsay Zolads that came out on The Ringer last spring that sort of restarted my love for Elaine May, if if you will. I was kind of like, oh, my God, I, f- so, I love her, but I kind of forgot about her. And it talked about Ishtar, which was the one movie that I was always kind of like, oh, everyone says this is bad. I don't know if I want to see this because it might ruin my love for this filmmaker if it's bad Mm -hmm. and then 
Alamo Drafthouse had a screening series that was like male friendships told by female filmmakers. And I just kind of was like, well, I'm a completist. And I was like, I have to see this because if I don't see this, then I, I have to have my own sort of judgment of it. And I went and I honestly laughed so hard. I was crying. I was like, this movie is, what are they talking about? <laughs> this movie is the worst movie ever. What? Um, yeah. And then I, I subsequently over the summer, uh, a film forum in New York City did an Elaine May retrospective and I dragged cool. many of my friends wow. to see Ishtar in the theater. Yes. I was like, you have to see this movie. And how grateful were they? They were all pretty grateful, I have to say, <laughs> like not to toot my own horn, but they were like, oh, my God, you were right. And uh, you've also uh, written a few articles about Ishtar and Elaine May. We'll, we'll put links to those in this episode's description. But what was it then? What was has been the response from the writings that you've done about this subject matter? I mean, I think the response has been it's it's my pieces have been one of a few of many over the past year or so that are reconsidering. Elaine May and her work and the ways that she didn't get her dues in her time. And I think right. the response has mostly just been like, oh, thank you for this. Like, she is great. Like, we need more articles that are saying how great she is. Totally. Agreed. I I don't know. I was pretty sucked into to your writing about her and, uh, and Ishtar itself. So I'm going to launch into... Um, I, would, I would usually say a quick synopsis. This is not quick. <laughs> I had to watch this movie twice... Once to like really wrap my head around what was going on and actually just like figure out what really was happening. And then another time just to enjoy it. And I caught myself just laughing so hard. Mm -hmm. uh, this movie's so funny in the weirdest ways. And uh, the sincerity with which Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty play their characters is, I don't know, it's kind of just magnetic. And you can't forget uh, Charles Grodin and Carol Kane, just such an amazing, amazing cast. So here we go. And take notes in case I miss anything or get something wrong, because so much that so much of the details of this movie happen in like whispered dialogue. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to launch into it. Chuck the Hawk Clark and Lyle Rogers are the hottest undiscovered talents on New York's indie music scene, or at least they are to themselves. After they meet with Marty, a deadbeat agent, they finally, they finally have a chance to play a paying gig, either in Honduras or Morocco. They choose Morocco because Clark says it's safer. By the way, uh, I'm going with their names as Clark and Rogers because that's how they go as a music duo. So, so Clark says that Morocco is safer. Uh, meanwhile, in Ishtar, a city near the Moroccan border, an archaeologist finds a map that prophesizes that two messengers will appear during a time of upheaval, and through them, the poor and lowly will rise up and the mighty will be humbled. The archaeologist's colleague is concerned that it could start a holy war that would inflame the entire Middle East. Citing that Ishtar is currently on the brink of revolution, he advises that the map stays a secret. Word is out that the map has been discovered, and the archaeologist is hunted down and killed, but not before he hides the map, only to be found again by the two messengers. After Rogers and Clark land, the Ish land at the Ishtar airport, Clark is approached by what he thinks is a young gentleman who asks him a favor. She needs his passport, jacket, and the contents of his suitcase in exchange for hers. Assured by the by the woman that the U.S. Embassy will issue him a new passport by the time he needs to be in Marrakesh for his gig, Clark agrees. 
Perhaps he was dazzled by her claim that anyone who has the nickname Hawk must be bold and in search of adventure. Or maybe he was enchanted by the sight of her stealthily exposed breast. After Rogers gets back from a coffee run, Clark tells him that he bought a new jacket and lost his passport, but will get one from the embassy lickety-split. Claiming that the country is on the brink of civil war, the ambassador tells him that there's no way that he can help him. And um, so Rogers splits to Marrakesh and Clark heads to a hotel where he meets Jim Harrison, who happens to be a CIA agent and wants to buy Clark dinner, claiming that he's excited to see another American. He is in Ishtar because the communists are trying to, t- to arrange a coup and take over. After hearing that the CIA is looking for regular folks to get paid to act as informants, and that's how the CIA recruits agents, Clark is very interested in this opportunity, but mostly just takes advantage of Jim's influence at the embassy to get into Morocco. Rogers and Clark are reunited and have a fantastic first show, playing all covers. Later that night, a mysterious person comes to their hotel room, attempting to take Clark's suitcase. Rogers has a scuffle with what he thinks is a 15-year-old boy, but is actually the same woman from the airport. Oh, sorry, I just need to catch my breath. Uh, (laughs) She informs him that Clark is working for the CIA, an organization that is working to keep the tyrant who rules Ishtar in power. He begs Rogers to help her overthrow Ishtar's ruler by letting her get back to the get back the contents of the suitcase. To show that he will help her, he must go to the market, find Muhammad, tell him that he wants to buy a blind camel. Meanwhile, Clark meets up with Agent Jim, who informs him that he knows that he and Shira had contact. Shira is the what they believe was the young boy uh, and is also the archaeologist's sister. He informs Clark that Shira is a left-wing agent whose brother found a map that could destabilize the entire Middle East. Uh, which would be bad because Morocco just signed a pact with Gaddafi. The CIA wants to find the map before the Libs and Agent Jim tells Clark that he believes that Rogers is a left-wing agent. The next day, Rogers and Clark are on a walk through the town market, each hinting to the other that they need to know what's up, but not before long, Ishtari goons take hold of Rogers and Clark. After an international gunfight in the town square, Agent Jim meets up with the leader of Ishtar, Amar Youssef, played by Fred Melamed, to tell him that the Americans are pawns, but he believes that they're messengers of God that, uh, sorry, that the map speaks of and, they, and that they're actually radical Shiites. He believes that if the messengers are executed, it proves his power. Back in town... Oh my God, there's still so much more. Rogers <laughs> finds a camel merchant named Muhammad and begins to broker a deal. Rogers is keeping an eye on him from a hotel room where he is confronted by Shira, who thinks that he gave the map to Agent Jim. It turns out um, Clark is all but hurt that Shira didn't recruit him as a communist, but instead recruits Rogers. <laughs> After they procure a blind camel and some fresh duds, Agent Jim tells Clark to head southeast to, uh, into the desert until they get to the Paragon Oasis. Meanwhile, Shira speaks with her commie buds, and they realize how Rogers and Clark need to die in order for them to get the map. So she finds Rogers, tells them that they are in danger, and they need to go into the desert and drop these beads that'll glow in the dark so they can follow them back into town. The insurgents have insurance and hired hitmen to find Rogers and Clark to finish the job of the desert uh, in case that doesn't kill them first. After hours of roaming the desert, Rogers and Clark are up Shit's Creek. They're thirsty, they're going to miss their show, and then all of the truth comes out about the CIA and Shira. They survive the night after a windstorm that, uh, and happen upon a black market gun deal. Clark gets mistaken for the auctioneer, who knows the dialect of all the different tribes. With Rogers in similar garb to the arms buyers, he acts as, an, as a plant to further convince the arms dealers that Clark is legit. 
It somehow works and the sails start flowing. And once Rogers and Clark hit rock bottom afterwards, they discover that the lining of Clark's jacket has the map sewn into it. The CIA finds them in the desert, about to shoot them dead. This is also, by the way, spoiler town. So fast forward if you don't want to know exactly what happens. The CIA finds them and is about to shoot them dead. But once they realize that they're not being rescued, Rogers and Clark use the guns from the sail to shoot back. And suddenly Shira shows up the hired cab and she brings an arsenal they deflect the choppers cut to marty and the agent has the map uh marty the agent sorry has the map and is brokering a deal with uh, agent jim at the cia the terms are that social reforms in ishtar dictated by shira must be enforced and a live in concert album by rogers and clark financed and promoted globally by the government uh happens culminating in the most amazing concert with forced military applause Meanwhile, in Portland, Oregon, some dude has never done more pausing and rewinding. I know I missed a ton. <laughs> I, I How did don't... I do, Carrie? Was that okay? I mean, I think you hit every beat. <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> I, there's so much. It's, yes. such, it's so dense. Well, plot It's plot like three wise, movies yeah. in one. Yeah. And, oh. and also, like, didn't even talk about, like, the the way that Rogers and Clark met each other. And I, it's like the longest flashback in movie history. Well, and it's so good. And and so I, I had trouble. It's it's one of the few. So it's funny. I watched. I also watched it twice. And it's funny to look at my notes from the first viewing and my notes from the second viewing because it's almost like uh-huh. I started watching a different movie. Just because there right. was so much that, like you said, after watching it once and just following the plot. Watching it a second time and being able to focus on the uh, some of those really subtle lines of dialogue that are just hilarious, and the the lyrics of the songs, which oh my I God, so funny. am in love with, written by I, Paul Williams. Paul Williams, yes. I mean, God, D- Dangerous Business has been stuck in my head for days. Days. Totally. I mean, I keep waiting for them to release the soundtrack. That's like my one qualm with the Is there big no qualm with yes. soundtrack. I don't Man. think there's actually an official soundtrack, but like I haven't found they one. They could do snippets. I did I looked on Spotify for Rogers and Clark, but like they're a techno act. I don't it's like What? <laughs> it's not yeah, I, I was like, oh wait, Rogers and maybe they released under Rogers and Clark. Nope, it is not the same Rogers and Clark. But that, Yeah, uh, no, there's that's nothing so official. Good. Yeah, well, I mean, this movie famously didn't do well and has been unfairly mocked. Uh, I I don't know. I mean, Carrie, like you were saying, it's like if people give it a chance, they can see actually, I don't know, like how great it really is. And yeah, the, the songs are hilarious. And watching them come up with the lyrics felt really authentic. It felt like I was really peeking in on these two guys trying to write what they think is the most brilliant song about how great it is to be a liar and how bad it is to be honest. Oh, it's so weird. But didn't even mention how like they their relationships dissolve. Um we we kind of get robbed. I wish that there was more Carol Kane in there. Mm. But always want oh well. more Carol Kane in anything. I know. Carol Kane know. is just always she just is so her characters her roles are so she's so good hearted and she just gets so abused by these men who just kind of use her as a, a space filler. And yeah. you just feel for her. Hey, what are your guys uh, favorite Carol Kane roles? I mean, it's hard to think off the top of my head. Simka. 
I do really. Sorry. Oh, go ahead. Oh, Simka from Taxi. Oh, that, totally. That would be my favorite. I mean, favorite for me, I, my mind, I just go straight. I just go straight to Transylvania Six Five Thousand. <laughs> I just love her so much in that. Yes. But I think that that's also just because, like, when I was a kid, I watched that probably more than anything else featuring Carol Kane. So, True. True. Yeah, it's just stuck in my psyche. I mean, Taxi is up there for me. I also think like it's just been so great to see her in Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt and have this like She's so funny sort of resurgence with young people, if that makes sense. Oh, and she was yeah, and Hunters too. Yeah, on Hunters. That's right. Yeah, she's great on Hunters. So yeah, yeah. Uh, real, real quick, what would each of you do for an Ishtar passport stamp? I saw that like there's a scene when they're in the airport and they get their passport stamps with Ishtar on it, and I was like. Oh man, like that would be such an awesome uh, like movie prop to own, like the Ishtar passport stamp. <laughs> it should oh, be that so- would be really cool. You should have it should be like a badge of honor. Like, yes, I I watched Ishtar. I I you know, like cuz like you carry, I had this that same reluctance of uh and I've, I I had actually tried watching it a few times in the past and never made it past i think just like what are they do what are warren Beatty and dustin hoffman doing and what is this and i couldn't get past that and that was actually kind of one of my questions was it for your average film goer because the movie was number one at the box office the weekend it, it came out right. and you know people saw it people gave it a chance but is this the is this the type of movie that for for your average viewer is going to really appreciate greatly on a second viewing. And like, what do you do? Do you tell someone like, look, the first time you're not going to know what the hell is going on, but trust me, it's going to be worth it for the second time you see it. This should just be double features with Ishtar and then Ishtar again. (laughs) I mean, I think a lot of average viewers and especially when it came out, like they just, they don't know what to do with a film that pointedly casts these two actors, these two really well-known actors against type. Mm -hmm. Like they just... It's you watch it and you're kind of like, what, what did I just watch? Like these, these aren't these guys at all. And at the time too, it's like so not used to what you're seeing. I mean, Warren Beatty playing the like, quote unquote, ugly one of the two, like with (laughs) Dustin Hoffman as the ladies man, like what? And I'm, I'm, well, and it's that I kind of, I bought because you could tell he's kind of full of shit. Anyway, with the whole Hawk business, but Warren Beatty and the performance was so genuine that the first time I I watched it and he's making all these jokes about being big and from Texas and I I wanted it to be Randy Quaid (laughs) or Uh, or like a John Goodman. Um, But then the second time I watched it, I felt more like you said, like they're very intentionally being cast against type and playing against type. And... It's when when I think that that for me was one of the first pieces of the puzzle when I started to see what was really kind of under the surface, under what I had seen the first time. So I'm glad I watched it. Yeah, it's like that's just another layer of the joke. It's like an over it's like an undercurrent to the whole thing. Oh, and like once you unlock that. Right. Right. And I I wanted to ask you because there were a few things I picked up on and, and I thought to myself, is this coincidence or is this intentional? But I, f- I found several references to Dustin Hoffman's career. Um, oh, tell- yeah? Telling the truth can be dangerous business, all the president's men. Huh. 
uh, where else? I, I have a bunch of these written down where I'm like, when he when they're in the bar after uh, Warren Beatty, after Lyle's wife leaves, leaves him uh, and they're in the bar, the woman that Dustin Hoffman is flirting with, her name is Dorothy. Uh, there's kind yeah. of the the obsession that that was like, OK, that coincidence. But then there's also the obsession with Simon and Garfunkel and who famously right. you know, created the, the soundtrack to the to the graduate, not to mention also the scenes of Hoffman as the smaller fast talker walking down the New York City streets with the taller, bigger <laughs> kind of hayseed. It's Midnight Cowboy. Wow, Dan. <laughs> Am I did um, did either of you have either of you like noticed this? Am I just like have I been stuck I in my basement to way too the, long? A third time now. <laughs> oh darn it! No, I mean I definitely noticed the the last part, um, the just the juxtaposition of him being the small fast talker, and I think that that was that had to have been intentional, like. I don't know if I caught the early the other ones that you mentioned, but like now that you say them, it's it makes sense and in my mind. And and and, and then you, we're talking about layers here. There's the added layer of the Simon and Garfunkel parallel, a, a shorter one who's kind of saw himself as the the genius of of the group, and the taller one who was seemingly, I, I guess, almost riding the coattails. He was the Garfunkel, yeah, of Simon and Garfunkel, <laughs> Lyle. So it, it, I, I, there, there, yeah, there was so much once that kind of that Pandora's box opened. Yeah, I, should, I found myself just thinking, like, am I just, am I looking for things? Am I finding things because I want to find them, or what? I, I don't know. Knowing Dan, having known you for literally my entire life, uh, Carrie, we are brothers. Uh, having known you my entire life. Yes, you do that, and it's wonderful. And it's, I uh, sometimes it's like eh, maybe a stretch, but in this case, I don't think so. I think that you made some very good observations here. I think if like the original intent for the film was, what if we update a road movie like a, a Crosby and Hope road movie? It was kind of like who are the the parallels, contemporary parallels now. Like a duo. Oh, I guess it's Simon and Garfunkel. Whoa, wouldn't it be funny if Simon and Garfunkel weren't talented, one, and then two were performing in Morocco? <laughs> yeah, it's it's really, uh, I don't know, astonishing to watch. And uh, the more you watch this movie, the more it unfolds. And that's just, I think, something that makes a really good movie is like when you find new things in it every time. And it, when you're given more things to think about, uh, I, I don't know. There, on my second viewing, some of the things that really stood out to me mostly took place in the uh, the flashback about how they met and everything, and like seeing, you know, Lyle as the ice cream man who just like <laughs> can't stop writing songs in his head and ignoring the kids, like. That was one of those funny things where I think the first time I was watching it, I was just like, wait, where are we in time? Okay, got it. Yeah. And I wasn't able to catch up to myself. It's not a it's it's not a clear transition. No, but I don't know. Once once you once it clicks, it's wonderful. It's really, really fun. I think for yeah for me I think because they had just come from like having an argument right before you go into the flashback and then the flashback begins with with 
Hoffman, you know, uh, you know, playing behind the piano. I think it. I think that's the first part of the flashback. It's. I'm thinking to myself, oh, okay, so now they've gone their separate ways and they're going to come back together for this job. And the first time I watched it, yeah, I, I wasn't. I didn't catch that it was a flashback until well into it. Yeah. Uh, so, Carrie, since you know way more about the history of this movie, what were some of the things that really bumped people when it was released? What, like, why did it become this, like, I don't know, globally panned movie? Well, it was kind of set up to fail from the beginning. Um, Elaine May doesn't have a great track record with studios and with making a movie and sticking to schedule and sticking to budget. I mean, there's the famous story with Mikey and Nikki that she shot like over a million feet of film or something like more than Gone with the Wind. And and she wasn't sticking to the schedule and was a year behind. And the studio wanted to release their own cut. So she stole reels of film and hid them in her garage to prevent them from doing so. <laughs> and Ishtar was like no different. I mean... She got this chance to make this movie because she had been such an instrumental part in Tootsie and in Reds. And both Beatty yeah. and Hoffman were kind of like, we owe her. And they used, Beatty especially used his star power to kind of convince the studio heads that she would behave this time. I remember I read an article that was very much like the studio head was like, will you behave? And it was like using those exact words that was just Ugh. so like patronizing and like yeah. Warren Beatty's also a perfectionist and kind of eccentric with his filmmaking and wasn't asked that. But it all kind of fell apart when they went to Morocco. Elaine May just like it's a very ambitious film for Elaine to make this action comedy in a right. sense. And it it went over budget by like I don't know how many. It was at the time it was the most expensive comedy ever made and the head of the studio changed in between mm -hmm. and the guy who came in had a grudge with Warren Beatty and he also uh. had a grudge with expensive movie making. Oh. And so now in the past few years it's come out that like all this bad press the film was getting as it was made, I mean stories from set being like Oh, Elaine is saying, flatten these dunes. I don't want them. And they're like, we, you can't do that. <laughs> um, and everything about costs running over and making her seem incompetent, they were all planted by the studio head. Uh, Mike Nichols Ugh. said, I think, something like, this is the single prime example to me of a studio committing suicide. Mm -hmm. Like, they just wanted to set an example with this film and maligned it from the start. And that was what critics focused on and so it's kind of like you're going into the movie almost expecting it to be bad and then with that viewpoint it's it's sort of hard to recover from that wow right because you're also not Ugh. presenting in a movie that's necessarily it, it it doesn't spoon it's not like it's not necessarily the easiest movie to like if you don't know what you're expecting when you sit down to watch it totally it's yeah. like you've made an already sort of difficult to love film even more difficult to process. And then, I mean, the jokes just kind of piled on from there. And it was, I mean, for decades, it was considered one of the worst movies ever. There was a far side, uh, there was a far side cartoon that was like Hell's Video Store and every shelf was filled with Ishtar. And it was only until... It was only very recently that the cartoonist was like, you know, when I did that, I actually hadn't seen the movie. Mm -hmm. And 
I've watched it recently and it's actually really funny. But yeah. that like yeah. it's weird to think that one cartoon in a syndicated newspaper like was so infamous and so had such a huge role tarnishing the repu- reputation of a filmmaker and a pretty like benign comedy. Come on, Gary Larson. I can attest to the power of that cartoon because I, I mean, I, re- I love The Far Side. That was my favorite comic. And I remember, I remember that comic. I remember it being funny. That's also, I developed my sense of humor from listening to Weird Al Yankovic reading Mad Magazine and looking at the far side. So yeah, that was, I mean, I'm sure I was making Ishtar jokes before. I know I was making Ishtar jokes before I had ever seen it because I had only seen it this past week. <laughs> so I, right. So yeah, that, but, and I think that that far side comic honestly had a lot to do with it. Uh, Gary Larson. But he apologized. You've ruined what could have been such a wonderful thing. Yeah, but still, if that no, no. affected the way that people would view something that they'd never seen before, then... Yeah. No, it's true. That sucks. Yeah. So uh, another thing that I loved about Ishtar was the the blind camel. And uh, I just have to wonder, how do you think they did the foley for that camel's voice? It is so crazy. Oh, that camel. I have no idea. Come on, boy. Easy, boy. Easy, boy. What the hell's the Put this over your face. Keep your head down. Keep walking and don't talk loud. It's a it's the craziest sounds ever. Yeah. Um, the, yeah, that camel. I love I also oh. I also wow. love the interaction between Charles Grodin and Dustin Hoffman when they're like kind of talking behind the camel and he's like point at the camel and he's like <laughs> pointing at the camel the entire time. It's just so weird. How much for the camel? Jim, keep your voice down. Keep your voice down. Point at the camel as we speak. How did you find this beeper? You mean this thing is a bug too? Only at close range. We use it basically to track with. The men in strong hands are members of Emir Yosef's army. They're trying to kill you. I thought Emir Yosef was our guy. He is. He is. But he doesn't like the idea of your friend dealing with a known communist. Don't touch his mouth. One of his teeth is banned. I'd like to go over the Shira Assel situation with you. As one agent to another, I've heard the Amir is a prick. Really? Well, we'll have to look into that. But the main thing is to get you out of town before you're recognized. Do you know anything about the desert? Yeah. That's what Las Vegas is. Cute, huh? That is cute, yeah. That's where Las Vegas is. <laughs> yeah. It's a good one. I remember that. It's a good one. Yeah. You can stop pointing out. Oh. Stand up. I don't know. It's just such like a funny, bizarre movie, and Charles Grodin is just like, oh my god, he's amazing. I, he's we amazing. Talked about him uh, ad nauseum before. Oh, Midnight Run, yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, the way that the way that he when he has that that dinner, that first um, time where they sitting down with Dustin Hoffman, and he explains to him exactly how 
people are recruited as he's doing it. And Hoffman yeah. is so, and it like both of these guys are so man, easily manipulated. I mean, look, and, and I, I, another thing I thought on the second, on the second viewing was how, how brilliant the commentary is that, Hey, it, it, that, um, Ashira cell can, can, sway Dustin Hoffman just by showing her breast and he's hypnotized. Well, she's also so good at it uh, throughout the entire movie. Like when they're sitting in that hotel room on the bed and she's, you know, getting the tears on and she's just like getting him on her side or, Mm -hmm. you know, when she is in, well, the other hotel room with Lyle and, and kind of recruiting him, it's just like, you know, she sees them as everybody sees them as these suckers they're so manipulative uh and at least for Shira Cell, like she is so endeared by them by the end like that oh. she's just obsessed with them at that point she's which is in, yeah so Happy wild tears. now Isabella yeah. Johnny I had heard was dating Warren yes. Beatty at the at the time so uh I I assumed that had something to do with her casting though she's quite good I think in in what she's with what she's given to do. Yeah, I thought she's great, and well, also Warren Beatty. I mean, he was dating Madonna during Dick Tracy. It's kind of just like his thing, right? Annette Bening. Well, which co-star hasn't Warren Beatty dated? <laughs> hmm. I I guess any of them since Annette Bening, <laughs> maybe. Hopefully, uh, yeah. <laughs> have to imagine. I Hopefully. think because wasn't it? Didn't they meet yeah, on Bugsy, it, and that was it. <laughs> Oh yeah, I think so. Yeah, uh, but yeah, um, Isabella Johnny is awesome in this. She really takes what could be a very thin character and, and fills mm. it out, and you really understand why she's doing what she's doing, and you can see the development about how she does come around to really liking these guys, these complete nitwits, and she also happens to really like their music, which is even better. So that's why I so I want to ask both both of you, John and Carrie, uh, what what's your favorite Rogers and Clark song? I mean, Dangerous Business is just so good. I mean, Dangerous Business is it's such a a bop like it <laughs> yes. it shouldn't be. <laughs> I mean, there are definitely standouts though in that final yeah that final montage that I just kind of go back to and I'm just like, also. What? I love that they how long they play that final scene. Oh, it's it goes on so much longer than it needs to, which is just so much fun. Well, so here's a, uh, here's, I, I, Dan. Uh, here's something. I, oh, Dan. Sorry. Here's something I want you to do really quick. Yes, just really quick. Could you just sing me the beginning of Dangerous Business? Oh, oh, sure. Telling the truth is dangerous business. Uh, honesty. Wait. Oh shoot. What's the next line? Honest Telling and the popular. Truth, honest and popular don't go hand in hand. You can tell people you play the accordion. <laughs> oh, and it's also I love how they incorporate that into the score. Right. But Dan, now sing the first couple of lines of the song "Seasons of Love" from Rent. Five hundred twenty-five thousand six hundred minutes. Five. Oh wow. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so just saying. Just saying. Wow, another. Just at, saying. Yeah. Wow. There might have been okay. some influence there. Did not catch that. Anyway. Yeah. So Dan, what was your fa- what was your favorite Rogers and Clark Rogers and Clark uh, 
bopper. Well, uh, of course, I, dangerous business, especially the like the ending credits version with the like gospel choir in the background. Right. Uh, I because I love. I, I, I just some of the lines like we can sing our hearts out and hopefully no neighbors complain. Um, oh, yeah. But I really wanted to throw out a mention too. I'm leaving you some love in my will. Oh, my God. Well, that's a that's a Clark. It's yeah. so right. It's Clark. But but that's the one that Rogers is <laughs> that gets him. He's so excited. And I love when when he when Hoffman looks over at, at Beatty, Beatty's sitting at the table and his his wife is so embarrassed and he's just like, Man, I love that song. The looks on their faces as he's singing that song is so good, like that family. And also, um, I think it might be during the very first Rogers and Clark performance. Did you notice uh, Dylan Baker in, yes. as an extra in that scene? Yes. I saw Dylan Baker and I was like, oh, Dylan Baker's in this. And then he never says a word or shows up again. I was like, oh, because this is, I think, the same year that Planes, Trains, and Automobiles came out, right? It Yes. Yes, it is. Yeah, um, so like yeah. he that was kind of his breakout role, but same year he was really just an extra at a Rogers and Clark gig. Yes. Which also, by the way, um, that first show, that first show, I would I would buy albums for all those bands that perform. Oh, those mon- those like montages are so great. I love the one so that's good. like the girl group singing like yeah. I'm quitting high school cuz <laughs> you don't like me. I'm like yeah. I need more of that song. It's, it's just so, so really stupid and so good. I mean, did Paul and Williams never record any of these? <laughs> I read somewhere recently that they they literally only wrote those snippets. Oh my which, god. Which like I don't know how your brain can work that like you don't even have to write the full song. You can have the idea of the song and write like two lines or like a chorus to it and and that works um but they yeah they just recorded everything live i mean i have a feeling that paul williams just like farts out a masterpiece like once an hour without ever anybody else ever hearing it like he's that good at songwriting oh just yeah yeah. but you have to be but but to be good at being bad like this to be that good so good that you can be good at being bad it reminded me a lot of the songs from uh you know the christopher guest films you know from uh, waiting for guffman oh, right. from mighty wind the the music reminded me so much of uh of those songs especially in in the lyrics yeah i mean you also have to wonder well i mean michael mckeon and christopher guest they were definitely coming up around this time and getting more and more popular around this time. Yeah. So uh, I don't know. I wonder if there's just shared influences between them and, and Paul Williams or uh, if they've ever, I don't know if they've ever worked together actually. It, to me, it sounds it's like that's, we're talking about that whole early to mid eighties SNL, like New York comedy scene. And I could see Paul Williams fitting right in there with them. Yeah, Totally. Before we move on to talking about kind of life beyond Ishtar, uh, does, is there anything else that we, we want to cover before we move on? I had a question, and I so Carrie, I I've only seen the director's cut. Have you seen both cuts of the film, the theatrical and the director's cut? I have. Uh, there's really not much of a difference. I think there's one extra like part to a scene, like an extra minute or two in the theatrical version that has been cut. It's the first time Mm. I've ever seen a director's version that's shorter than the theatrical version. (laughs) 
<laughs> I didn't realize that it was shorter. That's amazing. By like a minute or two, something. Yeah. It's like the most minute difference that it's, I think it just, but that alone speaks to the perfectionism and the the need for control that Elaine May has that at some point they indulged in her desire to have a director's cut out because I mean, if you look at her film, A New Leaf, like that's something that her version versus what was released is radically different. And Mm -hmm. that never got a director's cut. But for this, it's like, did you really need that? But yeah, it's like, it's not a difference at all. It's more of just like, I don't, marketing? (laughs) Marketing, yeah. I don't know. I guess so. Just like healing old wounds. I don't know. Yeah. Another point I wanted to bring up and just get get both of your thoughts on is because the, the movie starts filming in in 1985, and I in 1986 I remember there being uh, there was a lot of conflict with Libya, like we were on the verge of of war with Libya. Um, whereas I, before '86, like it wouldn't have been. I was I was I don't know eight years old. I wouldn't have been aware of it. I was aware of Libya in 1986. And by summer 1987, you have the um, Iran-Contra hearings. So people might be a little bit more familiar with with you know, what the CIA does. I, I, I can't help but wonder what correlation that news in, in 1986, 1987, wh- what impact that might have had on, you know, the the production, the marketing of this, like how much more difficult just does does Middle East politics make it to make this film? Yeah, I think it's like it's one of those things where it's so prescient when you see the way that she sort of has this Elaine has this cutting commentary on America's involvement in the Middle East and could see that our involvement was bubbling up, but I don't to only have it escalate as it was going on and then have that coming to a boil as it came out. I I think it was probably like, I mean, we've seen it with a lot of Iraq comedies in the early 2000s. It's like, it's a little bit like, oh, too soon. We're not ready to process that. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. To me, yeah, I just felt like, man, that like that, the, the, the idea of seeing a comedy about, I, like all of this, you know, Middle East set comedy that, I mean, it, that might've been, it's like how a lot of, there's a lot of things right now that there's, I'm like, I'm sure this is very funny and I'm sure I would find it amusing, but right now I can't laugh at this. It's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so I was wondering how much that might've uh, hurt Ishtar's chances at success, especially because, you know, it it does have quite a bit going for it. Yeah. I And, and also, I, things are so different now than they were then in terms of representation uh, acting in movies. And, you know, in this, you certainly have people who are not representing the cultures that they are actually from. I don't know Fred Melamed's heritage. I couldn't believe my eyes when I saw that that's who that was. He's just been such a... I don't know, a big presence in comedy lately. And to think of him, I don't know, in the 80s doing something like this and looking so wildly different. And I had to think like, oh, that is no, that is not actually the way that 
I, I, I don't know, unless I just don't know enough about Fred Melamed's background, but I don't think that that's, you know, a, a, an accurate representation, certainly, of that culture. Um, also, Isabel Johnny, I don't believe, is, I, I don't know where she's from, actually, or where what her heritage is. But nowadays, I think people are starting to get a little bit more aware of that. And uh, should something like this be made now, I think that it would be done a little bit differently. And um, I guess, Dan, I want to ask you, 2020 or 2021 after a uh, global pandemic is over, how would you imagine uh, Ishtar will be brought back? Why, as a Broadway musical, of course. Okay. <laughs> Carrie, this is a common thing with Dan. He I, wants we, to bring everything back as a musical. John Broadway I, musical. I, I have I have in my defense, we have not had one and I, I, I only say it when I feel it it honestly and we haven't had one in a while. The long goodbye would not make a good a musical a major league, perhaps, but seconds, I don't think so. But Ishtar with the music, and I think that now I think that's a way for it to find its appreciation, to find a new life and to you have a lot of these, a lot of cult movies that become musicals and take on a take on a new life. And I could really see Ishtar working as as a musical. You could. And initially I was thinking my my initial thoughts, because I was also thinking of different pairs of actors that I would have liked to have seen do it over the years, like a Kristen Wiig and Melissa McCarthy circa 2010 <laughs> Ishtar would have been, uh, you know, would have been quite something, um, you know, like Rick Moranis, uh, John Candy. Uh, I was like Billy Crystal, John Goodman right. in the eighties. That would have been great, but I, I wouldn't remake it as, as a, as a movie. I, man, I'd put, I'd put it on the stage. I'd make it a, musical um you know maybe write full versions of some of those songs that paul williams just kind of wrote a couple of phrases for oh how would you how would you deal with the uh the arms deal scene how would i deal with the arms deal scene sensitively yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it would be a musical number it would because if Fair you're enough. doing because i think in a musical you're when when you have people breaking out into song, you're already breaking the rules of reality. You're putting your view your your audience knows that they're not to expect realism and and what they're seeing is is absurd. So to do that scene as a musical number, I th I think maybe takes a little bit of the cringe factor out of it. Yeah, it's it's the cringiest scene in the film, and I feel like that's yeah. probably the only way to deal with it. <laughs> I like the, the idea of it as a musical. That'd be yeah, fun. I mean, it is. It is a musical. I, I there's definitely a lot of opportunities to explain things in the song in order to make it a little bit more clear for first time viewers. Yeah, that's true. Uh, Exposition. So like, kind of like a mm -hmm. let, let me get this straight <laughs> scene <laughs> or like uh, perhaps a, a narrator who's guiding you through it. It'd be Jim Harrison. It'd be Jim Harrison filing his <laughs> uh, like report. <laughs> uh, yeah, totally. But yeah, imagine like imagine that scene as 
as a song between between the two of them, where he's explaining how people get get recruited. You've got I, I think you've got a lot of great fodder uh, from. I don't know for comedy for, I think that a lot of the humor would play really well on stage. And I, I don't know exactly how you would do the shootout with the helicopters, but not my problem. <laughs> right. Carrie, do you have any thoughts about how this would be, uh, I don't know, brought back nowadays? I mean, when I first saw it, I think one of my initial thoughts was I kind of had this sort of frustrated thought of this is going to be something that like Seth Rogen and James Franco remake like an Adam McKay movie (laughs) which it would be funny but at the same time I was kind of like oh they'll remake it and it'll be really well received and they'll give a lot of interviews about how oh no they stuck to the original script for the most part because they thought it was so funny but like all this heaping of phrase on of praise on the um the remake and I was kind of like I I don't want it to be remade. I want people to discover the original and so and a revival. Accept it. Yeah. Just a I resurgence think a revival of or once movie theaters are back open, more like late night screenings and just more buzz. Yeah. Yeah. Perhaps, I mean, uh, podcasts now. to talk about it in a positive way <laughs> for the first time because it's impossible to find anybody talking about it without bashing it. Just saying. Yeah. I mean, not, but now that a musical is brought up, that's just yeah. like my brain is immediately like, yes, I want this. <laughs> yeah, and uh, it works. I mean, uh, and did did Elaine May win the Tony recently? She did. So I mean, right. the the sort of good juju for Broadway is there. Yeah, the stage loves Elaine May. Oh yeah, yes. Well, I mean, Nichols and May. Yeah together both yeah, i mean yeah. if you 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 add the two of them and then you have you know mike nichols and i mean you know i know that they're not this, the same per- i just i associate them so much and i feel like mike nichols was also so much of a to me it, it's always from what i've known that he's really had elaine may's back and is like kind of the maybe the one of those few the few people who who understood her and actually like respected her um her work ethic and her, her perfection and just that the reason that she wasn't going to settle for anything less than what she wanted and i kind i i do love how she kind of has this like fu attitude to i uh, i don't know the entertainment industry and is still, you know, doing awesome things out there, but definitely just like doesn't care what anyone else thinks. She's going to do what she's going to do. And unapologetically, I I really love that about her. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So I did have an idea for a remake and I'm not saying that it's the best idea, but as I was watching this, the only thing I could think of if this was to be brought back as a remake is to make it a Flight of the Concords movie. Because you have the the two weird songwriters, and maybe they're not as, I don't know, bad as songwriters as uh, Rodgers and Clark were, but they've got the the dumb agent who would, would get them set up for a string of shows in Morocco. Uh-huh. The two of them could, you could see, get into all this nonsense, and they're already established, and I think that it would be a way to do it without 
being like we are just straight up remaking this movie but doing it with an existing property i think would be a fun way of approaching it but i do like the the musical idea but i thought that i could see uh jimaine clement and brett mckenzie doing this and kind of killing it or you said it you have a sequel that's set just a few years later and rent comes out and they realize that their melody's been stolen <laughs> although uh with with uh, jonathan larson larson having passed i think uh, that yeah. could be problematic yeah don't don't know if we can do that yeah but that's really Seriously, interesting like, man the past few days all i could think of was how seasons of love just totally took that melody I did not pick up on that. I tr- I mean, I think I've I heard Seasons of Love so much in the mid to late nineties that I think my brain is just like done processing <laughs> Seasons of Love. It's, but 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 it but Dangerous Paul Williams snuck it back in, man, with Dangerous Business. He did it, and I watched a, an interview with him that was just on YouTube, and he just speaks so lovingly about his experience writing this music for Ishtar, and you know brought up uh, brings up a lot of good points so maybe i'll sneak in a uh, a clip or two from that but you just gotta love paul williams you know i read the script and it was very very funny and and it was about writing you know songs the songs for two bad songwriters but it, to me it just went you know immediately it went so much deeper than that and i wanted to write totally believably bad songs i you know it's just and you set songs up in such a way where they start off maybe really nice you know where you go, well, these guys have talent, because I think they do. I think Chuck and Lyle were really talented. They're very real to me, incidentally. I got very method about this whole thing. I don't know if we'll ever talk about Phantom of the Paradise, but it's just like one of the best movies I've ever seen. Are you familiar with that one? I'm not, no. Oh, I, it's crazy. I haven't seen it yet. It's kind of one it's one of those also on the uh, am I gonna am I gonna give this a shot list? So it's definitely worth it. It's right. uh, this is a it's a post COVID movie that you're going to want to watch with other people. Okay, yeah, understood. So late night showings, Phantom of the Paradise, Ishtar, can't wait. Ishtar on stage. That's right. Uh, so before we wrap up, is there anything that we missed? Is there anything that we uh, still need to cover for Ishtar? I think just one last thing about Ishtar is that. It's important to remember that this was the last film that Elaine May ever directed. Um, it, it landed her in director jail, and even though she went on to write the screenplays for The Birdcage and Primary Colors, Ishtar is the last time that we have seen her vision in totality on film. And it's just kind of – it's a shame, and it's also absurd at the same time because so many other directors have made – monstrous awful bad flops and have gotten many second chances oh for sure yeah no seriously and also shout out to the birdcage just one of the greatest of the greats perfect film great great comedy and i also primary colors oh we're gonna shout out some more elaine may i mean man I imagine just imagine what could have been had had her talent been better, you know, nurtured and supported. Yeah. Yeah. I've, it's it's sad that there are so many what ifs with Elaine May's career. Yeah. Yeah. But we'll we'll always have Ishtar. 
we'll always, always have, have Ishtar. Ishtar. So, uh, Carrie, how can people find you online and uh, and read your your articles? Uh, I'm extremely online. Um, I'm on Twitter and Instagram, Carrie Corgan. It's just my first name and last name. Uh, and my writing can be found at um, I'm a contributing editor at Brightwall Dark Room, the literary film journal, and I kind of freelance all over the place: uh, Glamour, Garage, Paper Magazine, Vanity Fair, etc. Well, we really appreciate that you joined us for this amazing Thank you. look at Ishtar. Thank you for having me. I can't believe those words just came out of my mouth. It's so good. Uh, uh, so the, yeah. the next the next month of episodes, the month of May, is going to be. I'm so excited about this. It's all mo- episodes focusing on movies curated by uh, Milita Cherico. She's the programming manager at Turner Classic Movies and programmer for TCM Underground, as well as the co-host of this hilarious podcast called Sorted Details, aka Sorted Deets. Uh, Millie's going to join us on our next episode. Dan, do you want to tell everyone what the movie's going to be? Yeah, we're going to skate on back to 1992. It's time for The Cutting Edge. I'm so excited. I watched it the other night. I don't I don't even I'm not going to say anything. Carrie, have you seen The Cutting Edge? Oh, I have. Oh, okay. <laughs> I cannot wait to talk about this movie. I I'm not going to say anything yet. Yeah. No, nope, we yeah. W- we won't we will say nothing until the next time we talk. <laughs> Great sentence, Dan. I, that, that's 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 where my head's at. That's what I. That's all I got for you now. So, um, good journey, Carrie and John. Be well and good journey. and popular don't go hand in hand if you admit that you can play the accordion no one will hire you in a rock and roll band but we can
Ishtar shall rise again. 